G'day, it's Parky here with the Cancel Sale Watch podcast. Today it's part two of First No after Luke calls it quits early on a solo circuit and says no to continuing. In part one of First No, we talk back and forth for a bunch of time on the art and science of saying no, and today in part two we share a bunch more no stories, or at least maybe what should have been no stories and what happened as a result of not saying no. Welcome to the Cancel Sale Watch podcast. So what's the Cancel Sale Watch podcast all about? Well, it's where three pilots from three different generations, 22 years apart, gather every two weeks to pursue the spirit of flight. Sam's our baby boomer pilot who first flew in the early 70s and safely logged five decades worth of military, police, rescue and instructional time. Parky, that's me, is our Gen X pilot and I began flying in the early 90s. I've got a passion for safety management along with 20 years of military, rescue and instructional time. And of course, there's our new Gen Y pilot in training, Luke, who just kicked off his flying career by signing up for pilot training at a local flight school. Three different generations of pilots with three very different generational perspectives talk through the joys and challenges of flight as Luke progresses through pilot training and beyond. From the first spark of aviation curiosity to going solo and onwards to a professional career, Sam, Parkey and Luke passionately pursue the spirit of flight within the now highly technical experience of modern day aviation. As you listen, you'll get a couch-side, behind-the-scenes perspective into the training, the knowledge and the attitude it takes for a pilot to finish a flight and radio in to air traffic control, cancel Sailwatch. Hope you enjoy our conversation, and if you reckon it's worth it, please rate and comment. Also, why not visit the cancelsailwatch.com website for additional content such as pictures, memorabilia, safety articles to help you cancel Sailwatch. And now, on with today's conversation. So Sam, what's the worst thing that's ever happened because you actually said no? Let's flip it around a bit. I was, I was tasked by a guy who, who owned a helicopter company, small helicopter company, with dismantling a radio mast. There's two of these radio masts and because they changed frequency, we had to pull one to bits and relocate it in mm. a different angle. So I went up there in a Bell 47, it was a Soloy with a turbine, with a strop. Oh, yeah. We had a little handheld radio and they had a handheld radio and the guys climbed up there and they'd undo it and I was to go up there they connect the strop and I was lifting off sections you see yeah. so the first section we went up there and they're talking to me and guiding me and I'm looking down the bottom all this sort of stuff and all very exciting never done this sort of thing before <laughs> and uh, everything went quiet and I thought mm, I'm waiting for them to say something and then yeah. I glanced out the side of the aircraft and the, the top section of the of, was at right angles to the to the mast and, oh, wow. and, no. and uh, I thought this is very exciting I'm about to die here so I just picked it up and then yeah. popped it down on the ground and it turned out that these the batteries were, or the charger was actually faulty and it wasn't putting oh. the right charge into the batteries yeah, right. so we had no um, no uh, two-way communications uh. and at that stage there having had to change my pants three times yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought right that's it this is this is far too dangerous. I'm going to die here and mm. kill kill other people there as well. Yeah. So, called a quit. So I went back and uh, no more work from that operator. Oh wow! Mm. And did and how did your company act? Like did they did they blame you for it or were they understanding or? I was the company. Oh, you were the company. Oh. <laughs> did no, you beat yourself around a bit? <laughs> no, I was a, I was the uh, freelance pilot for oh, Sydney right. Media and all that sort of thing yeah, at the okay. time. So. 
was my company, so I had plenty of other work, so it didn't phase me that yeah, much. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm. Another another way of overcoming you know, the, this part of the pressure yeah. to finish a job, which I could mm. say to Luke, is sometimes you can get around, especially the weather one. I was, I was flying a Nomad at the time when they were brand new, and of course, you don't want to say no. Mm. And uh, we, we we landed down at Albury, and we had all these honchos on board, and mm. they wanted to fly around Barnagilla and yeah. have a look at the new apprentices thing and that. So uh, the weather was absolutely atrocious. Mm. You know, yeah. It was raining inside the the Nomad. That's how bad it was. Yeah, you wow. could kind of you know <laughs> hand there trying to see out, and all these because these wet bodies had come in and they were sweating or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I knew darn well we weren't going to go flying, so I I arced up this 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 nomad, and and so I'm taxiing out there, seeing about you know hundred hundred yards ahead of me. And next minute I see this tap on the shoulder by the <laughs> ADC saying uh, the general thinks it's not not worth flying. We can't see much. Oh really? Okay, fine. We'll so taxi back. <laughs> shut her down. It was his decision, yeah. not mine. You know? So uh, I didn't lose face. Yeah. It was his decision. And there's another one uh, back early in my career. Uh, you're always getting pushed by people that you, you task for to just do one more thing mm. and in, in the uh, jet range like most aircraft they have a 20 minute warning light and we had one guy there who was an absolute terror on just doing one more thing after another so I came in there a junior pilot sort of thing and I wasn't going to say no to him so I left the, the master warning on so we had the, the, the low fuel <laughs> on it only just come on yeah. and because we landed on this little side of a hill it came on a bit early oh, yeah. so I left it on the master caution lights flashing away there and so he, he made the decision yeah. you see I knew darn well I had enough fuel to, to fly five minutes back and get refueled but yeah, but yeah let them make the decision if you can possibly mm. Possibly. I think I'd add to that as well. Like there's oftentimes um, people that aren't flyers or pilots haven't put two and two together themselves to realise that how hazardous flying in really bad weather is and, and oftentimes just sitting down with them and explaining what's gone through your mind, why you can't fly and so forth, I think is really helpful. And we used to do that at the start of an exercise. We'd go mm. and talk to all the commanding officers and we'd say, listen, if we say no, this is why, we'll try and give you a warning. We'll try and tell you if we know there's trough lines coming through mm. or something like that. But they're already pre, pre-warned then and that mm. way they're already thinking of plan B and you should always have a plan B with aviation and uh, because it is quite fragile in a sense. I've, I've found that to be quite good and even I think having nowadays human factors training getting clients in getting customers in getting commanding officers of infantry units in you know getting hospital staff that are tasking getting them into human factors courses and just let them see at least one Mm. or two of these accidents that we go through as case studies i think that's a powerful Mm. thing too to shape the culture so there's a culture there that's uh, that's Mm. appropriate Mm. the worst thing that ever happened to me i was just going to say nothing really like i mean i've had a few people question and then, you know, sort of go around me and talk to engineers and stuff about why I've said no, but really nothing. Look, I've never lost my job. I've never been even threatened with losing my job because I've said no. So I kind of think that's a that's a positive thing. And I guess I really wanted that to come out because for you, Luke, you know, again, everything that we've talked about, commercial pressures and so mm-hmm. forth, if you are convinced and it's a reasonable decision that you should be saying no because of a safety cause mm. that's a noble cause and you should you should stand by that mm. so so how do you think you're going to go mate in the future uh, that's that's the question isn't it like it's easy to kind of sit here and well i don't have all the commercial pressure because really mm. i'm kind of paying to go flying when i <laughs> want to go flying to mm. get my uh, a license but i have been kind of reading up on blogs and just other kind of things of more experienced pilots and yeah the, and the things that they do and one of the common themes is 
especially to people who aren't pilots, sit down and explain mm. to them the reasons. Mm. So I thought that, that was pretty cool. And the other one that I had come across, and I'm not exactly sure if they kind of said it like this or I mm. put my own little twist on it, is that I think when I get my commercial pilot's license, mm. internally, I'll kind of have the attitude of, you're not paying me to say yes, you're paying mm. me to say no, yeah. if, if the conditions aren't right. Now, they, now my employer might not think yeah. that way, but I just thought that was a pretty good, I don't know, attitude to have. It's yeah. like at the end of the day, um, yeah, well, for me personally, yeah. I'm getting paid to say no if I don't think it's safe, that kind mm. of thing, and keep everybody else safe yeah. that um, I've got on the airplane. Well, I think as a mental exercise, we know there's a cognitive bias to go. Like oftentimes, mm. it's, you know, it's a confirmation bias. We made up our minds that we're going to go, and so we just make all the pieces fit, even though it might be round peg, square hole kind of thing. Mm. So I think it's oftentimes it's good to go, hang on a minute, if I don't want to go, what would the reasons or excuses be that I would come up with if I didn't want to go? Mm. And even to discuss them with a the crew. And then oftentimes you'll get a more symmetrical, balanced approach to whether to say no or say yes. Mm. Yeah, and cool. oftentimes what I do with um, unserviceabilities as well, because unserviceabilities are another one where if it's an intermittent unserviceability, like it, it's coming and going, you land, they ground check it's serviceable, well, how long is too long? Like how many times do you accept that, knowing mm. that maybe it's going to require a lot of money, a lot of time to pull the machine apart to find this problem? Uh, what I've discovered there is is that if you can, if you've got a really experienced pilot uh, and you know their acceptability threshold is um, maybe a little bit lower than yours, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And then someone else who's a really experienced pilot whose acceptability threshold is a bit higher than yours, you ring them up separately, mm. is what I did quite often, ring them up and say, this is the problem, explain it to them. And then if, if one of them goes, no, I think that's okay, and the other one goes, no, you're kind of in the middle still, mm. and you can make the decision knowing, okay, it's one of those non-binary ones. But if they both go, no, you go, okay, that's, that's yeah. a big no. <laughs> if they both go, yes, it's okay, well, it's still up to me, but they're both saying yes. Yeah. So I, I found that to be a helpful tool as well. Yeah, cool. Hmm. I thought Bougainville was really good for training not only pilots, but also getting the message across to the, as you said, the commanders mm. up there as you brief them and mm. and also when they started flying around because we remember when we'd first arrived up there scared and witless, you know, flying mm. around in lousy weather mm. and then when, of course, when they were subjected, they'd be looking out the front and couldn't see anything. Mm. So the message really gets doubled home to them then. After a very short period of time, there were no questions and everybody mm. do their job. Yeah, we had, we had a commander we were flying along with. It was actually the opposite where he was very, very nervous flyer. So I remember he would always sit in the middle. He wouldn't sit on the edge. And oftentimes you'd have to go above the weather rather than underneath it to get across from one mm. side to the other in Bougainville. And we later discovered that he'd been in a light plane crash. So mm. he had a bit of a phobia going on, which I didn't realise at the time. Mm. And he kept talking about, you know, why are we flying so low and all that kind of stuff? We weren't flying any lower than anyone else. But to him, it just appeared to be really mm. low, probably because it was being fueled by his fear. So mm. it can go the other way as well, mm. where they're, you know, ultra sensitive. And that can also cause issues where, you know, they're... They can sort of make judgments or assessments which aren't that well informed about yeah. exactly that. Why so low? Yeah. So, hmm. This is unsafe, but it's not. It's not yeah. based on any yeah. yeah sound reasoning. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that was interesting. Good old Bougainville. Nearly twenty years now. Yeah. Just another one too. We were talking about weather related before, mm. and I said it all. All mine was pre NVG. Mm. Well, down in Melbourne and Sydney to a certain extent too. Melbourne is in a bowl, so you've uh, quite often you've got a low cloud base 
in Melbourne, which is kind of workable, stay below that. So you and you can operate with, with say, five hundred foot cloud base. Mm. But if you want to go over the other side of the range, mm. you have to. You have to go above it. So you, you, you're not IF and you come over IMC, mm. you come down, descend in the other side, and mm. inevitably it's fairly clear over the other side. Mm. But you can get caught. Now, I can remember uh, once you were going back to there, we said uh, when you went and you said maybe I shouldn't have gone, I was taking mm. off out S and a really low cloud base, probably only about 250 feet, mm. and uh, we had to go somewhere down to the southwest. And I was really reluctant to commit to. IMC, mm. and uh, and the, in fact the tower came up and said, you know, your ops normal sort of thing. I said, ah, oh, it's okay. So, mm. so I got two thirds of the way down the runway, just climbed up because I really had no idea how far this yeah. low cloud base mm. was extended. I thought, mm. if I can't get out of, mm. if I can't get down at Essendon, mm. where am I going to go? Yeah, like yeah. because we, we'd get scrambled at yeah. you know, five minutes notice sort of thing, mm. and I was really. Concerned. Mm. As it turned out, it was groundless. Yeah, okay. Or, yeah, the fears were groundless, but mm. uh, it was just that thought at the time, mm. well, should, I, should yeah. I, shouldn't I? Yeah. Well, I've had yeah. ones too where I've, out of here, I've, I used to say to uh, to the tasking agency for care flight jobs, oh, it's 50-50 that will get in. And most times they would go, mm, okay, well, don't worry about it. We'll seek alternate means. We'll get an ambulance or something like that, which nine times out of ten, it's not. It actually is not going to be a life-saving job anyway. In mm. fact, one in 60 research shows that a helicopter actually value adds in mm. general EMS or you know general emergency services work. And on this one particular night out of here, I went 50-50. He goes, okay, good, we'll take that. And it's like, I said, we do realise because there was like fog coming in and it was one of those rare nights where there was fog everywhere except Toowoomba. <laughs> so they wanted <laughs> us to go. Thing? Yeah, no, it does happen, believe it or not. And most of the time, it's that radiation fog. It all forms in the valleys. And it was mm. exactly like, so Brisbane, Archerfield, Marucci, Brizzy, they were all predicting fog from about, I think, 2 a.m. onwards from, from memory. And anyway, uh, they want us to go to Archerfield, then go up to Gympie, and then come back to Archerfield. We had to go to Archerfield to pick up a doctor, go to Gympie, pick up a patient from Gympie Hospital, and then take them back to, I think it was Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane. And, you know, we don't have a weather report for Gympie, but I know it's right near the river, so it's going to have fog just like anywhere else. And so I said, look, we'll probably get there and we won't be able to turn around. Do you still want me to go? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I still want you to go. We've got no other options. I said, well, you need to have another option. You need to have a plan B because if I can't get in, if I get there and there's fog, I'm not, I'm not going to land. So anyway, we went to Archerfield, picked up the doctor, went up to Gympie, and on night vision goggles, you could just see this glow that was Gympie, but you couldn't mm. see Gympie. <laughs> All you could see was this cloud, mm. and the paramedics had been sitting there at the pad waiting in fault, which would have kind of been nice to know a little <laughs> bit earlier. Nice to know earlier. <laughs> uh, but what had happened was there's a little airfield just to the south of Gympie. The fog was literally yeah. advancing like the darkness of Mordor kind of thing. Yeah. And we, um, the doctor in the back said, listen, if you can at least get us on the ground, that's going to value add because they don't have enough medical staff or whatever. So we uh, we thought, okay, well, I can get into Gympie. In the time it took to fly from Gympie Township back to Gympie Airfield, which was like two minutes or something, the fog had advanced the northern end of the runway. And I remember thinking oh. to myself, I should be saying no. You should be saying no, Adrian. This is like, you know what's going to happen because a rotor system actually creates its own mechanical yeah. tor- turbulence. 
And in an atmosphere like that, it's essentially looking for an excuse to turn in a cloud mm. and you give it one with your rotor system. So anyway, I'm thinking, I'll give it a go. So I came around and as I came around on final, uh, it was all kind of fine. I could see everything and visibility was good. I'm thinking, cool, I could see the fog at the far end and I'm telling them, you need to get out of here as quickly as you can because I don't want to be fogged in here. Anyway, as I came to about 50 foot and then about 40 foot, the rotor system started to um, produce vortices, visible vortices, and I haven't seen anything like this before. And they basically swirled around the top of the, uh, around the front of the cabin and around the front of the cockpit, almost like, like a dust kind of brownout kind of situation. Uh, and, and again, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to see through, and I could just see like one of the white uh, lines on the runway. And I was able to um, fi like fix my scan on that and have just enough visual cues to be able to hover because otherwise you just, you can't, you mm. can't hover, you can't use the force when, you know, Luke kind of thing, you can't, no, not you, Luke, <laughs> Luke Skywalker. But you know what I mean? You can't just use your proprioceptive senses. You've got to have visual cues. And yeah, just fogged out and then still see the runway barely landed kind of, well, my heart still needs ones. It wasn't the prettiest landing, but at mm. least it was a safe landing. Uh, and then we've got the medical team and they're like jumping out and heading off and me and the crew are still sitting there like just fog all around oh, <laughs> I'm wow. in the middle of the runway I can't I'm too scared to even pick <laughs> up the hover off and then suddenly it just all cleared again because uh, obviously there was no talk yeah. anymore on the rotor system I'm like oh should I give it another go and try and get out of here so we gave it a bit more uh, time a bit more thought and we thought about okay this is what we'll do if uh, if we do fog out again and so forth and still see through the chin bubble mm. so we picked it up and nothing happened it was okay cool so we took off and then as we're taken off um, successfully no dramas we could hear the paramedic going are you coming back for us and it's like no nah, because like all the fog had just swept across the top of the yeah. uh, airfield and then as we're coming out we tried to get to Marucci door which was still supposed to be clear for another hour or two no nah, it would all fogged in then Archer Field had fogged in, Brisbane had fogged in, and good old Toowoomba. Thankfully, we had enough fuel, and we planned it that way anyway. We had enough fuel, so we just put our tail between our legs and went home to Toowoomba. And I was like, anyway, I mean, the medical staff were probably happy that we got them there, but at the same time, you know, was it really worth it? They could have probably put him in an ambulance and gone up there, lights yeah. and sirens, if they really wanted to. So that was a time I should have said no and didn't. Good old gimpy. I, I did a, an interesting one in a... A porter, the up in the Atherton Tablelands, the Tinaru Falls mm. Dam. Can yeah. I tell you about that one? No. We had two porters that flew some honchos from Monogra actually up mm. to uh, dining in. Like they, the engineers had put a, a bridge out and put a few uh, sections together and put the, the officers' mess out there and had, a, <laughs> had their Waterloo dinner or whatever it was yeah. on the on the lake. Yeah. So we dropped the, the honchos in the day before. One of the porters stayed there, grass grass strip, and they had all the trucks and equipment lined up on either side of the of this grass strip. And the porters were down like one end, so I took off and went down to stayed overnight in Cairns, put the flight plan in the first that morning, and then flew up to Tinaru to pick pick these guys up. We uh, arrived over there, and the whole place Tinaru Dam was fogged in. Uh. So I'm flying around there, thinking, well, this is interesting. And then I could see a, a marker panel, one of those day glow oh, marker yeah, panels. Yeah. At, at the, and, and I could see the strip. You could see a couple of, couple of uh, mm. white cones. So I got on the radio to the porter on the ground. I said, mm. what's the uh, runway direction? Give me the magnetic bearings. And <laughs> he gave me the magnetic bearing. And, he, and I said, well, you're obviously up that end because I can't see you. He said, I'm fogged in. I said, what, well, make sure... Get them to run up and down mm. a, in a in a Land Rover and make sure there's nobody on the strip. And so I've got this this little hole, you see, wow. going through probably only 100 mm. feet of 
of uh, cloud. But mm. so I, I made my approach like a beater approach down through the cloud onto this <laughs> <laughs> onto this marker panel. It goes pop, and it ro- rolls along there. I could you could see the the trucks on either yeah, side yeah, wow. came down there, turned around, just shut it all down. They're, they're looking at me. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> well, I'm the aviator. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a good story. No, I hadn't heard that one before. That's mm. good. I remember one in Bougainville too where it was a similar thing. Was just Except in a helicopter, it's a bit easier. At least you know you can kind of hover, mm. even if you can, you know, on top of the trees. And some, I think it was some civilian guy had forgotten his pack and he'd gone up into the hills, I think sort of west of Wakanai there up in the hills. And anyway, he... It was sort of one of those bad weather days where on the coast it was okay, like you were talking about with Melbourne, you know, 500 foot cloud, but as soon as you try to go up into the hills, it was just all rubbish and he was just where the cloud started. And so he'd managed to finally find where he was at the village and stuff. And actually one of the crewmen I fly with now, he was telling the story the other day as well because he had the pack in the back and we were able to just approach. And again, the rotor system starting to kick mm. up all the cloud and we're hovering and then the cloud sort of starting to come down while you're hovering. Probably just sucking the cloud yeah. down. Yeah. And there was the village sort of built on the side of this precipice essentially. And here's this Huey with me flying it and trying to hover there, hold a stable hover. And all I remember is packs away because Stu, the guy, the crew in the back, he'd had enough, though. So he just thrown it out. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> It landed in this big mud pot, like the biggest, muddiest pit that he could find in the center of the village square there. He just, it had just hit there. And um, anyway, but, and this guy, I think he was like an author or something as well. Like he was doing some um, mm. special book or something on the Solomons and Bougainville and so forth. But later on, we were like his heroes. He was just so happy to get his pack. He didn't care that it was all muddy and stuff because yeah. at least he had his stuff inside that he yeah. could use. But but that was another time where I probably should have said no. It's like, what am I doing here? This is just a pack. This guy could probably, you know, borrow a blanket from a villager or something. It's like, mm. anyway. Were you in that, I think it was three or four, might have been four helicopters up in Bougainville were going into this little village of kind of a hearts and minds type of thing and it was a low cloud mm. over it. We all just went down there and hovered yeah, one yeah. at a time over the top and just kept going around and around and around and dissipated and landed. Yeah, that no, that wasn't me. That might have been someone yeah. else, yeah. It was south of um, Lolaho. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty amazing place over there. We might do an episode on that, I think, in the future. Yeah. Anyway, I better let you guys go. Uh, any final general discussion points or anything out of our first grounding, first no podcast? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to say no. That's what we can probably It's okay to say yes. no. Yes. Sometimes pride, like, yeah. yeah. Swallow yeah. pride at times. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It, it, Stay it, humble. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Stay humble. Swallow your pride if you need to. Be courageous. I mean, they're the values, I think, that a professional aviator has mm. to have. Um, so, no, that was a good one. Thanks, guys. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Awesome. Cancel Sawatch is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely. The SAR in Sawatch is an acronym for search and rescue. When a pilot radios Cancel Sawatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then the Cancel Sawatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel Sawatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again, thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsawatch.com. 
where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Sarwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.